This is part 13. Uh, part 13 of our journey, and some of you, it, it's been a journey. You're like, I, I can't wait until we get done with the Old Testament and the New, but, but it ends here today. Um, so this is our, our, my 13th sermon that I've preached from Amos. People still ask me, why are you preaching from Amos? And I usually tell them, I've, I've never heard any one preach from Amos, and I didn't even know a whole lot about this story when we first began back in May, I think. It's been a while. And so, we'll conclude today with the final five verses. But before we do, I would like to give an, an ever so brief, just kind of recap of how did we get here in the first place? Amos is the story of God, who is the God of the oppressed. I've been saying that like every week. So if you, if you remember anything, that's what this story is about. This story is about God, who is the God of the oppressed. And, and this is good news. Especially in, in lieu of what happened yesterday in Charlottesville. It's really good news. I, I got a Facebook message this morning and someone said, are you going to talk about that? Are you going to talk about what happened yesterday? I said, yeah, but probably not in the way that you might expect me to talk about it. Like, if, if all you want me to come up here and say is, hey, racism is bad, and racism isn't dead, well, then, then no, I'm not going to say that. Like, you can see that in your news feed. Like, that's not saying a whole lot. And I think as Christians, we need to say more than just racism is bad. Because otherwise, I mean, any, any pagan, non-Christian can say that. Like, that's just Christian morality to say racism is bad and it's not over. That's just acknowledging what we already know to be true. I think we can do better than that. I'd like to show people the God of Amos. If the story is about God who is the God of the oppressed, that's really good news, especially for those who are being oppressed. That's really good news to know that God is not unaware. Our God never sleeps, nor does he slumber. To know that he's aware and he's not okay with oppressive treatment of our fellow man, by any means. The Israelites, they know what it's like to be oppressed. For over three decades, they were under the oppressive rule of the Arameans. They're, they're also called the Syrians. It was a loose conglomeration of city-states. And they were under the rule of the king of Damascus for some 30 plus years until in 802 BC, God answers Jehoaz's prayer from 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. And in 802 BC, Adad Narari III, the Assyrian leader, crushes, crushes Ben-Hadad II, the king of Damascus. And from that point forward, from 802 BC forward, it ushered in this golden age, this 
era of peace and prosperity and with it this economic boom. And so for the last 40 years, the people have been experiencing, some of them would say, some very, very good times. And like often when we experience really good times, we become kind of self-sufficient. We don't necessarily need God as much like in those really hard times. We kind of get off course. It doesn't take a lot to get us off course to, to forget, to ignore, to rebel. And that's exactly what's happened. So God calls this guy Amos. Amos is a businessman. He's a breeder of sheep. That's that's what the story tells us. It doesn't tell us a lot, but he's a breeder of sheep from this town called Tekoa outside Jerusalem, about 10 miles in the southern kingdom in Judah. And he calls him to go and travel into the northern kingdom to preach a series of messages against Israel. And so... In chapter 1, he comes on the scene and he chews out all the other nations for their wickedness, for their oppression against the Israelites and some of their oppressive acts against non-Israelites and just chews them out. And I said, if you can just imagine what that scene must have been, especially him preaching chapter 1, I imagine the northern kingdom on the sidelines applauding and cheering. They're happy to know that God's judgment is on the way for these people who've just been jerks. And that's really putting it lightly. I, I mean, they were doing some pretty graphic things that we saw about. I mean, they were going into Israelite villages and like the, the sheer terror, like they were cutting out women's bellies and pulling out their, their pregnant babies. And so like Israel, yeah, like they're super pumped to hear that God's wrath and judgment is on the way. And that is what chapter one was all about. But then we get to chapter two and from chapter two through chapter nine, Amos essentially says, listen, Israel, I don't know why like, you're so happy to hear this because you're no better than these other people. You're no better than all these surrounding nations who've been so wicked and oppressive. And despite you thinking that you might have this get out of jail card for free because, you know, you prayed the sinner's prayer for the 18th time at summer camp when she were in 11th grade, like despite your uh, covenant status, your elect status, that doesn't absolve you from obeying God. If anything, it makes you more accountable. And so from chapter 2 to chapter 9, Amos just preaches these series of sermons around 760 B.C., just really ripping into the people. I mean, this is not a popular sermon. It's not going over well, most likely, from what we can tell from his audience. He is preaching hard things, calling them to repent, calling them to stop ignoring God, to stop running from God, to stop rebelling against God. And then we come to the final five verses. And it's very interesting because these final five verses, there is a significant shift. In fact, many commentators believe that Amos did not write these final five verses because the shift is just so radical. They argue that his disciples wrote these final five verses sometime after the fall of Judah in 587. However, there's a significant, I guess you wouldn't say a conservative block that I would probably subscribe to, which maintains... Uh, Amos authorship over this and they would argue that the argument simply because it's a radical tone or uh, difference in the final five verses is it's hardly an argument that Amos didn't write these verses but regardless of whether you subscribe to Amos authorship for the last five verses or not the point that's really clear is these final five verses are very different they're very different in that they're very positive 
the last 12 sermons I've preached, there's a certain tone to it as I try to, you know, uh, replicate Amos and what I imagine his tone would be. This is very different. These final five verses, very positive, very encouraging, very, very hopeful. So that's where we'll begin today in verse 11. It says this, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. David's booth, it's fallen. What, what does that mean? Well, a booth was a, a temporary shelter. Some translations, they may say tent, like the tent of David has fallen. The point is, it's not a house, okay? It's not a house. It's a temporary dwelling place. The plural word for booth, you get booths, and that's where in the Hebrew they have the festival feast of booths or tabernacles. If you was reading through John's Gospel, it's mentioned in there. Um, the Feast of, of Booths is one of the, the settings. And essentially, the people would live in these temporary booths, little makeshift huts, for an entire week in order to commemorate the wilderness wanderings when they didn't have a permanent house. That's 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 where we get this word, the, the booth. So, so every year they'd observe at the Feast of Booths, they'd observe and commemorate their wilderness wanderings when they didn't have a home, when they were passing through the land. And that's the word that's mentioned here. He says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David that's fallen. And so it begs the question, in what sense has David's booth fallen? I understand what a booth is, but in what sense does it mean it's fallen or is falling? Well, if you're tracking the timeline, 760 BC, you know that David's been dead for a couple hundred years at this point. And so when we understand this, it's most likely here a reference to David's dynasty. David's dynasty, his lineage, wasn't doing so hot right now. The line of David, the succession of David, it's... It's kind of like at an all-time low, this, this kingdom. It's at an all-time low. The Davidic dynasty had fallen so low that Amos doesn't even acknowledge it as the house of David. Rather, he calls and refers to it as the booth of David that's fallen. Now, unless you're an immediate descendant of David, you might not care at all about I mean, taking two or three minutes to mention that. But the people in Amos' day, they would have cared. Because there are certain implications that this has, with David's booth being at such a low point. If you're familiar with the covenants, if you're familiar at all with the covenants, right, you've got the Noahic covenant, you've got Abrahamic, you've got Mosaic, you've got Davidic, you've got New through Christ, but the Davidic covenant, this one, that's the one I, I, I want to focus in on this point because that has serious implications for this opening verse. The Davidic covenant, which can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 17, but really all of 2 Samuel chapter 7, essentially says this, God establishes and makes a promise to David that his kingdom will endure forever. His kingdom will endure forever. That's the promise. 
And yet Israel right now, the people hearing Amos' words, they might be wondering whether God's actually going to hold up his side of the deal, whether God's going to keep his promise, whether we can trust God. Which is also kind of like ironic, because I imagine it kind of being like this, excuse me, Amos, so like, I know we're in trouble and we've really been misbehaving, you've been chewing our our, our tails like out for a long time, but, um, and this might not be the best time to even bring this up, but can we really trust God right now? Is God going to keep his promise? The implications for these people is just that. Can we trust God? Is God going to keep his promise? Because the booth of David, not even the house of David, has come to such a low point historically that it seems like God may be having second thoughts. And so Amos comes, and God, speaking through Amos, tells them. He tells them that, no, I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to keep my promises. He says, I'm going to repair its breaches. The Davidic dynasty is pictured here as a wall that's been breached. It has holes broken through the walls. He says, I'm going to fix this wall. I'm going to, I'm going to patch up these breaches in the wall. And the ironic part of that is that the fact that the house of David's at such a low point right now, is due to a significant degree because of the insurrection of the northern kingdom. We go back in history, David's king, united kingdom. His son Solomon, united kingdom. His son Rehoboam, the kingdom divides the north, establishes Jeroboam as their leader. To a certain degree, the fact that the house of David is so low in the first place is because the insurrection of the northern kingdom. And yet God... He's so good. He's so good. He says, yeah, I, I can imagine. I can imagine this. Let me, Amos, tell them this. Tell them I'm keeping my promise. Tell them I'm aware. I'm aware how things look right now. We're going to raise up the booth, David. We're going to repair the walls that have been breached. Oh, by the way, even though they were the ones that, to a certain degree in this metaphor, breached the walls, broke through it. And I'm going to raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I'm going to rebuild it as in the days of old. This dynasty, this Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he promised would endure, this, this kingdom would endure and reign forever. He says, I can see it's at a low point. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to build it back up. And ultimately, we see the fulfillment of this coming in the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's where the fulfillment of this future kingdom that Amos is speaking of here will find its fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah. And then he gives some specific details in verse 12 of what this will look like. In verse 11 he says, yeah, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to raise it up. We're going to patch it up. And this is what it'll look like. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. These are the descendants of Esau. Esau, brother of Jacob, these are his descendants. These are his descendants. They're the cousins of the Israelites. They border Judah on the east. And he says, they're going to possess the remnant of Edom. 
Now, that's not like in a military, like, possessed or subjugation. It's, it's not what it's referring to at all. But rather, it's, it's going to be incorporated into this new, restored Davidic dynasty and rule. But then he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say, And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. God's doing this. Make no mistake about it. God's doing this. And it won't just be the Edomites. It'll also be all the nations. So I'm reading through the book of Acts, okay? I'm reading through the book of Acts. I'm in chapter 15. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 15, there's a problem that comes up within this new covenant community of God called the church. There's a problem that comes up and a Pharisaic minority is having problems is what do we do with these Gentile Christians? They look different. They talk different. They do things differently. They eat different foods than we do. They're just kind of weird. These Gentile Christians. And so they have to convene a church council. Acts 15. And so they all come to Jerusalem. And Peter gives a testimony about his experience in Acts 10, Acts 11 with Cornelius. And if you remember the story, Peter is told to eat these unclean animals. He's like, nope, not doing it. And God tells him, don't call what I say is clean, unclean. And then people show up at his house and they take them to Cornelius. And if that hadn't happened, like he wouldn't have even gone into his home. Okay? So the problem with Gentiles is sometimes hard for us to imagine, get our, get our minds behind, because when we think of Gentile inclusion within the church, we think of, that doesn't make any sense, because I imagine most of us in here are probably Gentile Christians just going on a limb, okay? So it's harder for us to imagine this, but it was a real issue there in the early church. Well, then they hear testimonies from Paul and Barnabas, and after hearing all the testimonies, James, who's kind of like the the main guy there, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, not to be confused with James, the brother of John, John, son of Zebedee, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, has this to say. His is essentially, after hearing all the testimony, he says, all right, this is what we're going to do. Here's what I want you to understand. And in Acts chapter 15, he says this, starting in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And this might sound familiar. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James, when dealing with the problem of Gentile inclusion within the church, quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 12, as the authority on this issue. We've got people coming into the church who are a little different. Maybe they have a different skin color. Maybe they're from a different part of the world and they talk differently and English isn't their first language. What do we, what do, we do with those people? That's the issue here. Well, how do we handle Gentile inclusion within this covenant community? 
And once again, it's, it's hard for us because we're like, well, we're all Gentiles, basically. So give me, give me something that would have helped me see it more like they do. Okay, imagine that socially awkward kind of weird person. You, you probably can all imagine in your life interaction with them. Or imagine that LGTBQI individual who just came out of that lifestyle, who's just been saved by Jesus. What about them? What about what about the ISIS combatant who's just been training rebels how to conduct suicide missions and blow themselves up and kill civilians? And that person, through a miracle of God, comes to Jesus. What about those people who are weird or different or awkward? What do we, what do we do with them? Like, it's fun to hang out with the cool people. It's fun to hang out with them, but what about all those other folks? When we first started Lynchburg City Church four years ago, I remember for about the first year, my friend Dave, he's, he moved away to Tennessee, but he said, Lynchburg City Church, he's like, it's basically the island of misfit toys, Joe. And I didn't know what that was. Apparently it's a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer reference. I didn't know what the island of misfit toys was. He's like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it's like the place where it's not like the cool kids who would be at the lunch table, but all the other like loners and outcasts, they come because they're accepted and they're welcomed and people care about them. If you know me, I'm not making an argument. This isn't an argument of we need to be tolerant Okay, I do think we need to draw a line in the sand when it comes to sin. Like, there's no doubt about that. So if you, if you don't know me, let me be really clear about that. Okay. Oh, let's just accept everyone. Just come as you are. Yes and no. Okay. We want to be biblical. We want to be obedient to God. But, but that's the issue here. Oh, and I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful to know that God keeps his promises. We'd be in big trouble if God didn't keep his promises. I'm thankful for the God of Amos, who's not just the God of the oppressed, but the God who keeps his promises. The God who says, yes, I made a promise to David, and his dynasty will endure forever. It's inaugurated with Jesus Christ, but then it's incorporated and infused with people from every tribe and every ethnic linguistic group. You want to give people hope in lieu of yesterday? They need more than just racism is bad. That's just Christian morality. Let's give them something else. Let's give them the gospel. Let's tell them about the God of Amos, who 800 years before the Messiah comes, he says, oh yeah, it's going to be there, right? This this future kingdom that's going to endure forever and is inaugurated with the person of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what language you speak or what color your skin is or how awkward or weird you are or what from what sinful lifestyle you've just repented of to come to bow your knee before the king in faith and repentance. Let that sink in for a second. Because, oh, by the way, he owes you nothing. He didn't have to say this. No, we take things for granted, including the pages of this book sometimes.
verse 13, he's going to paint a very lovely picture. I mean, this is just very hope-filled, very encouraging. Here's this picture of this future kingdom that he's going to paint for us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Now, there's four agricultural activities going on here. There's plowing, reaping, treading, and, and sowing or planting. And, and typically between each of these events, each of these agricultural activities, there'd be a gap of time. Six months, three to four months, there'd be a gap of time. And so what Amos shows us in this future restored kingdom is this accelerated rate in which the plowing, you'd go and you'd plow, and then six months later you'd reap from the harvest, literally overlaps. So they plow, and no sooner have they finished plowing, they're ready to reap the harvest. And no sooner do they reap the harvest, but then they plow again. It's this picture of abundance in this new era. That in this new kingdom, no one would want for food and drink, that it truly would be a place, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm glad he keeps his promises. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I, notice who is doing this. God's doing this. I'm going to plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So, there's a shift in the story. If you've heard the last 12 sermons, you know there's a shift from God's wrath to God's mercy and this renewed relationship with His covenant people. <laughs> That's good news. It's really good news. And, and notice, don't miss this, okay? Remember, I've made a point of emphasis to say, God's the one doing this. I'm going to plant them on their land. God's the one that's going to do this. They're, they're never going to be uprooted again. Amos makes very clear. The Bible makes very clear. God is going to be the one who restores. God's going to be the one who builds. God's going to be the one who plants. God's going to be the one who blesses. It's not going to be manipulated by some type of political coup, some type of social movement or revolution, some military maneuver, that's not going to engineer it. And so many Christians think that the path to fulfillment, this story, is going to come through some political party, some type of social cause. And uh, it's not. God's going to do it in God's timing. And I hope that's a very freeing thought in knowing that we don't have to be burdened by this in doing what only God can do. God alone can do this. And so, 
we step back, and I don't want us to, to miss what we see in these final five verses of hope and encouragement offered to a people who've just really been chewed out for the last nine chapters. I mean, God's taken them to the woodshed. He's taken the paddle to their rear ends for, for nine chapters. And in these final five verses, he offers them hope and encouragement. They don't deserve it. They don't. Like, these people are really, really bad. They're really wicked. They've ignored God. They've rebelled against God. They don't deserve it. And yet, God, through Amos, reminds them that he is going to keep his promises and more so. And I'm really thankful for the more so part. Because we we don't deserve to be part of this future restored Davidic dynasty. But we are. We don't deserve to. But we are for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and bowed our knee to him as Lord and Savior. We don't deserve to. Why? Because we're haters of God according to Romans 1.30. We're enemies of God according to Romans 5.10. Even our thoughts, our thoughts are just so bad. Romans 8.7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That is the mind of every unbeliever. It's hostile to God. It does not obey God's law. Indeed, it cannot obey God's law. And yet, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And sometimes I think those words just come out of our mouth without just stopping and realizing how significant that is. It should humble us. To know this, to know that we have the honor and the privilege to be grafted in to this future, into this realized kingdom, be grafted in. I mean, if you read Romans 9, Paul's like, listen, not everybody who is ethnically descended from Abraham truly belong to Abraham, but the children of the promise. That's really, really good news. To know that Abraham's our, our, our spiritual ancestor, and this is something that was declared and prophesied 800 years before the Messiah came, and that even comes up in the book of Acts, where there's this issue, well, do we let these people join us? Because they're weird, they're just different. James says, yep, because the prophets agree to this, and then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 12. He's not just a God who deals out judgment. He has done a lot of that in this story. But he's not just a God who deals out judgment. He's also a God who restores things. And that's good news. It's good news and it's something for us to look forward to. And it's something for us to embrace in the here and the now. For those of us who have been running from him, for those of us who have been ignoring him, to know that that 
that hope, that future hope in this story is realized in the person of Jesus Christ and that he lived the life we couldn't live. He, he died the death we should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay and that this, this future kingdom is, is realized here. It's prophesied here, but it's realized in the coming of the Messiah and that is good news and that's hopeful and that's encouraging. Not just to us who are already grafted into that kingdom, but for those of us who aren't, that if we would but bow the knee, if we would but place our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we could be too. He's a good God. He is the God of the oppressed. That's encouraging in lieu of what happens in North Korea or what happens in Charlottesville. It's good news knowing that he's the God of the oppressed among such hurt and just cruel, oppressive acts today. But it's also good news to know that he is one that we can trust and he is one that keeps his promises. He is faithful. Don't miss that. We love you, Lord. I thank you. Thank you for, for these last closing verses. I, I, I'm thankful for the fact this future kingdom realized now in the coming of your son is one that affords an opportunity for Gentiles, for people who maybe are a little bit different to be a part of this kingdom. Because I don't, I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve you. And what you've done. I pray that we would realize and not miss the magnitude of you that Amos paints for us in this story. That it would go beyond just a bunch of words on a page that it would take root in our lives. You're so good. And I thank you for keeping your promises. And I thank you for including all nations of every tribe and every ethnic group, even though we don't deserve it. And there's no reason you need to or have to, but you do because you're good. And I thank you that you're good because so often we're not. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.